All right, thank you, Thomas, for leading us. Let's, well, let's pray and prepare our hearts for God's Word this morning. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you again for your wonderful love for us. We can reflect on your faithfulness uh, together as a church, prepare our hearts to hear your word. We ask for wisdom. We ask for clarity. We know that inherently we, we lack the wisdom. And yet you tell us that if we do lack it, to ask for it. And so um, with so many of the truths we explore in Second Peter, um, there's a lot, of, a lot of dense truth, a lot of stones to turn over, a lot of riches to mine, and... We do ask, Lord, that with that task, um, we do need your help. We need your spirit to guide us. Pray that we would receive clarity, but also the wisdom to apply it. We know that these truths are, are timeless and they speak to us even today. And uh, they are your truth. It's your word. And I pray, God, that as we uh, study it today, you will give us a greater affection for it, a greater, a greater longing for it, and that from it, you would build us up together as a united body of Christ in the most holy faith. For His glory, and in His name we pray, amen. All right, guys, Second Peter. Please open your Bibles to Second Peter. We should finish chapter 2 today. Second Peter chapter 2. Text this morning will be the same as uh, last Lord's Day, 17 through 22. Second Peter 2, 17 through 22, please follow along as I read. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. So we are closing our study, our grand study of posers. Posers. We're in part three, and this we have titled, Of Abdication, Arrogance, and Apostasy. Started this last Lord's Day, verse 17, so we'll just pick up where we left off and by God's grace, we will complete our study of this text today. I'm actually uh, excited to get on to different material. Um, it has been uh, some burden for me to stay in, first, or in Second Peter chapter 2 for quite a while and, and labor over understanding the nature and character and activity, the subversive activity, activity of false teachers. So, um, I have tried to limit our time here so we can go on and consider other things, and yet we want to take these warnings seriously because 
As long as God's people have been God's people, there have been those who masquerade as God's teachers, as God's called shepherds to nourish the flock, and yet really are not. And so chapter 2 has that in view with some strong warnings for the church, but also equally strong condemnations for those who would come in and it seems deliberately lead God's flock astray. So it does benefit us to spend some time here, but we left off on the second part. So just jumping into the text this morning without uh, having a long introduction, this text I've split up into three particular sections. The first, of course, is concerning their abdication. Now, abdication is just simply a fancy way of saying, uh, of describing a person who has shirked their responsibilities to something. They have abandoned a particular role and responsibility and are no longer fulfilling it. Now, what makes this particularly dangerous for the church is that it seems that as though, though these false teachers are, have denied the faith, essentially, they have denied the master who bought them, they still linger around. It seems as though that they are still in the midst of the congregation. However flippant their presence may be, however in and out they may be, it seems like they still consider themselves as part of these churches. And so as long as they are welcome, as long as they are able to blend in among the true flock of God, there is a particular particular danger of which we need to be aware. Same today as it was in the first century church. So that is the first thing. They have abdicated their responsibility. Rather than being, again, bursting springs, bringing the refreshment of God's Word, they are springs, Peter says, without water. They are sputtering mists, unable to bring true refreshment and blessing to the people of God. You go down a little ways, and we have the second part, and that's where we were in the middle of last Lord's Day. Not only do they abdicate, not only do they abandon what is seen to be a sacred calling to serve the flock of God, but they are also arrogant. We know fundamentally anyone who wants to shepherd the flock of God must be a humble man. You have to have humility to to lead the flock of God, to to be an elder, to set an example. You have to put away pride and self-conceit in order to minister to God's precious flock. But Peter describes them as arrogant. In verse 18, we read, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice entice by fleshly desire. So it begins with arrogant words. So we acknowledge that there is a a confidence, right? But what, what arrogance is, what pride is, is simply confidence, misplaced confidence, or confidence when you really have no reason to be confident. See, we are supposed to be bold. We understand that, and it bears worth repeating again this Sunday. As purveyors of the gospel, whether you are an elder or whether you are a church member, either way, you are to be confident and bold in your proclamation and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rather than being timid, rather than being shy, rather than being cowardly, we can preach the gospel of Christ with full confidence, with full surety that what we are speaking is true and is powerful to save. But with arrogance comes words of vanity, worthless words, right? It's just, you basically have a bloated message, but without any real substance. And of course, that leads professing Christians astray, because their 
these arrogant words are fueled by fleshly desires, by sensuality, rather than by walking with the Spirit of God, pursuing life in Christ and growth in grace. And note too, in verse 18, the primary target are those who have just recently come out of unbelief, who have just, at least on the surface, have joined the visible New Covenant community. And so where do the proud go? Where do the arrogant go? Where do the self-sufficient go? To those who have just come out of it. And so entice them the same way that they are going into utter spiritual apostasy. And in verse 19, we still have another way in which this arrogance is manifested. Look at verse 19. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So if you see, this is the supposed substance of these arrogant words. Why is it arrogant? Because they are promising them freedom, but only a manufactured, counterfeit kind of freedom, which only leaves, leads back to spiritual slavery. That's what makes it vain. That's what makes it arrogant. It wouldn't be arrogant speech that they are speaking forth if what they preach truly led to freedom. Now, it's here we have to understand freedom in a biblical way because their freedom tends to be a subjective term because freedom isn't one of those words that is meant to stand on its own. When we hear the word freedom, how sh- what should our question be? To what extent and freedom from what? And freedom unto what? If we are set free, then what are we going to do? Now, this kind of freedom is counterfeit, and that is clearly expressed in the fact that it falls in both places. It is not a complete kind of freedom in Christ, and it promises freedom that is not linked to the gospel. Now, the freedom that is promised often depends on the context. Throughout the ages, as long as, as, long as heresy has been heresy... I think within whatever is being preached by a given heretic has within it some offer or some promise of freedom. When you say promise, you're giving a guarantee. People love freedom. Who doesn't who wants to be a slave? You know, quick show of hands. Who actually wants to be a slave? This is what you call, in a manner of speaking, first century clickbait. For those of you who don't know what clickbait is, just surf the internet for five minutes. Clickbait is a digital kind of promise. You're on, you're on Amazon, and you're looking for that next greatest theological tome so you can study and sharpen yourself doctrinally, and then you see it on the screen. Click here. The truth about green gummy bears will destroy your world. Ten reasons that you're always poor. Well, who wants to be poor, right? Well, how, why am I poor, right? Five easy steps to make millions in real estate. Who would not want to own a bunch of houses and be a millionaire? He thought it was Bigfoot's skull. Then experts told him this, right? All kinds of flashy stuff. Information, right? Truth. Answers to great mysteries concerning Bigfoot and becoming wealthy. And to some degree, depending on who you are, it's irresistible because we, we want to know. Because within these things is, is seen to be some kind of freedom, some kind of knowledge that will enable you to grow as a person. 
at the very minimum. And at best, it will make you financially free. Who doesn't love that? And when this information is presented, whether on the internet or even from the pulpit, it is information presented in such a way as to seem irresistible. This pathway to peace, prosperity, and ultimately, as Peter mentions here, freedom. Right. So these are things that attract our attention. They would attract anyone's attention because peace, prosperity, and freedom are seen to be as good things. The problem is, is that they are relativized. Right? They appeal to our fallen notion of freedom. They appeal to our fallen notion of prosperity and peace. And that's how believers are led astray. Because the freedom we preach must be linked to the finished work of Jesus Christ. It must be linked to the gospel and the proclamation of Christ's kingdom. So what is this freedom? I think, I think in the first century, what's going on here and the, and the freedom that is being proclaimed, I think we can understand this in at least two ways, but ultimately is this. It's freedom from Christ's coming judgment. That is what is being proclaimed in the churches. That is, that is, that is what is being, that is the message being resounded throughout the Roman Empire at that point. Not only the good news of Christ's kingdom, but the fact that he is going to judge, remember, the old creation, the old system, and he's going to make that clearly manifest by pouring out his judgment upon the apostate city of Jerusalem. So freedom from that. There is an implicit denial, and I mean, an explicit denial. Christ really isn't going to show up. Christ really isn't going to judge. Don't be afraid, right? Be at peace, peace and safety, as they proclaim. And I think along with that is if Christ is not going to judge, then feel free to follow me along this, this course of, of freedom, to, uh, freedom of, of, of sensuality, freedom of, of satisfying fleshly urges. That automatically seems to follow on its coattails. Christ will not judge, therefore... I can do these things. God is not really going to judge because God is a loving God. Therefore, I can really do whatever I want. You see how that thinking pervades most of human history? God will not judge. That's why we have the examples of, of Sodom and Gomorrah and Noah's Ark. Those who were not on the Ark were not on the Ark because they did not believe the Word of God that God would judge. As much as Lot was afflicted by the unrighteousness of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah was unmoved. They did not flee Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot because why? They did not believe God would show up in judgment. So the same line of thinking, that same expression of unbelief continues today. And unfortunately, it finds its way in the church via false teachers. Now, I said, I said before that there are different contexts regarding a freedom that is promised. We've already been through some of them, but I think you can even look back in certain times of the church age, and there was always some kind of freedom being promised, right? I think one, of course, is, is economic freedom, right? I think that's been kind of a, that's been a staple of false teachers, right? Some sort of economic, uh, economic freedom in which you are wealthy, you are prosperous, especially true in the health and wealth gospel. I think we still see that today. There's an, you're free from any kind of financial constraints. I remember one thing I used to watch um, on TV late at night when I was a kid. I don't know what possessed me to do this, but you have these preachers that are up there. They claim to represent Christ, and what are they doing? They have these little pieces of paper, and 
They represent debts of people who are calling in, telling them that my debts, you know, I was $100,000 in debt, maybe made some really bad choices, and my debts suddenly disappear. I don't really know how that works, but they're symbolically dropping these debts in a fire. Trash fire. It's a little ironic because that's what they're preaching is. But they're up there always promising freedom. Freedom from sickness, right? You're unhealthy. There is a counterfeit gospel which always promises freedom from sickness as if God never wants you to be ill. And yet sometimes he does. That was true of the Apostle Paul. He had some physical ailments that he could not get rid of. And yet, what do we find? From Christ himself, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Freedom from sorrow. You have a lot of, even today, a lot of emotional freedom that's touted, right? You don't like yourself very much. You have low self-esteem. Come to Jesus. He'll make you feel good about yourself because after all, that's what he's there to do, right? Think a big one today, especially as we see cultural Marxism uh, pervade the religious spiritual landscape is freedom from oppression. We've talked about the dangers of this because it seems that the church, especially in the United States, for, for, for one reason or another, has imported cult, cultural Marxism's teaching. Now, without going down a rabbit trail of explaining every tenet of cultural Marxism, the thing that should at least raise our spiritual hackles a little bit is this division between oppressor and oppressed. So there's a division within society. It's not merely economics. It's holistic. If you are oppressed in any area of life, you are one of the oppressed. If you are seen as in any social context as an oppressor, then you are guilty of oppressing. And of course, the key, of, the, the key to this is that all of this needs to come down. Right? All of the, this whole system of oppression needs to be burnt down. Now, why does that concern the church? Because if you actually read what the purveyors of cultural Marxism write, often the blame for this is put squarely on Christianity. That it is Christianity that is patriarchal and oppressive and any other thing you can add to it. Now, of course, this twists the truth. Because the fact is, is that every human being is oppressed. By what? We are oppressed by sin. And yet, that very important truth is kind of taken out. Right? It's removed. So that we can constantly proclaim a particular victimhood and then demand restitution. Again, this is not the whole picture, but it's an important part of it. But it takes all the attention away from the fact that each of us is born into sin and guilt and we need a Savior. The most tragic form of oppression is the oppression of sin and unbelief. And it not only oppresses us, it destroys us. It alienates us from a holy and loving God. And it does not even take His commandments into account. And when it does, once again, it customizes them and twists them in a particular way to, in our own minds, further our victimhood. But you see how it leaves out the main thing. leaves out the main thing. It does not, no matter how learned you become in this philosophy, it never makes one right with God. We were talking about this on Friday night, interesting conversation with the young adults, talking about how cultural Marxism brings forth, in a very crafty, subversive way, a false Christ. 
Because, in a sense, we understand Christ did come to set the captives free. But how? And from what? Right. And that is not left for us to customize based on our own experiences or based on our own prejudices. Christ came to set us free from the power of sin and death. And yet, cultural Marxism, even in the church, denies that reality. Further, it denies the sufficiency of the atonement. We've talked about this before, how in cultural Marxism, there is no forgiveness. And there is no final atonement. You're always atoning for your past sins of oppression. But you're never completely clear. Your sins are always over you, condemning you. There is no kingdom of God. There's only utopia, which ironically means no place. So you're always trying to get there, but you're never actually there. Whereas in biblical Christianity, Christ has secured salvation from sin, even the oppression of sin. He has ushered us by faith into His kingdom. See, we're not just trying to get to the kingdom of God. We've already been brought in through the precious blood of Christ. So you see the subversion there. You see the the hijacking of terms and the perversion of them to bring about a counterfeit gospel. And that's just one example. But like any other counterfeit gospel that the church has welcomed with open arms, cultural Marxism promises freedom. It promises freedom, but it only ends up enslaving. Promising freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. See, we are set free from sin, and we are now slaves to Christ. And we've emphasized this many times. You're always going to be enslaved to something, right? Man is never completely autonomous. He only is in his mind, in his unbelieving mind, but he is always dependent on something. He is always a slave to something. And according to Romans 16, if we're freed from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. We want to do what is righteous, again, not according to our own experience or education or emotions, but according to what God says is good and righteous. We are now bound to righteousness. We've been freed from unrighteousness. And he says this, and here's where this, how this arrogance manifests itself in terms of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is always arrogant. He says this, while they themselves are slave to corruption. You know, come on in, the water's fine while you're drowning. That's what that's like. Sitting in a room burning down and you're like, yeah, this is fine, this is okay. Nothing's happening. They themselves are slave to corruption. That is the irony of all this. And yet they promise you freedom. And it's amazing because it, it should be a sad thing for the church to fall victim to this. Especially when we have the mind of Christ, we should have a spiritual sense about us, about this based in the Scriptures, to say, wait a second, they promise freedom, they claim liberty, and yet they're, they're, they're buried. They're slaves. To what? Corruption. See, when the gospel is truly at work, friends, there is a purifying effect to it. There is a sanctifying effect to it. It roots out corruption. It roots out decay. That is why we preach a gospel with power. It is the power of God unto salvation. Not just a moment of salvation. We say the power of God unto salvation holistically from beginning to end, right? From, 
from irresistible calling all the way to glorification, the gospel is the power of God at work infallibly and unstoppably. And anyone else that falls outside of that, a belief in Christ, is a slave to sin. So that's something that should really alarm the church when this takes place, whether it be professed saints or those who claim to teach. Listen to what Romans 6 says again. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be! Right? Who's this poser who comes in and preaches a gospel and then says, oh, well, we can, we're all right. We're under grace. We can still go and, and, and do the same things we've always done. And he says, God forbid, may it never be. Do you, know, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? See, what we have here with these false teachers is a slave promising freedom and yet totally dominated by their own lusts and desires and yet with the same breath proclaiming freedom to everyone. Saying that they themselves are free and anyone who follows what I'm saying will also be free. We have to take the words of Jesus at face value. In John 8.34, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. All right? and, that, and, if that's, and if that's the case, we're going to see that pattern manifest itself. It's going to be very clear. Like, like we said before, you can only fake it for so long. Posers can only pose for so long before the truth of the matter comes out. And if you are a slave to sin, you are going to follow the lusts that lead to those sins. You're going to be slaves to those desires. Listen also to what Jesus says. It's a great promise. This is a true promise of freedom. To the Jews who had believed Him, Jesus said, "...if you hold to My teaching, you are really My disciples." Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, it's not just sitting in those chairs and hearing truth, hearing information pass between your ears. He says, if you hold to my teaching. Right? That's how being Jesus' true disciple manifests itself. Is that truth will have an impact. Truth will change your life. It will conform you to Christ. That's why Jesus says, hold to my teaching. Don't, don't just be a hearer who deludes himself. Be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. Right. Listen also to this, these promises that, of freedom that Christ gives us. In Hebrews 2, 14-15 we read this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. See, this freedom brings a freedom of death. We proclaim a true freedom in Jesus Christ. Right? A freedom that transcends all of these would-be promises of freedom. What we have in view when it comes to any so-called gospel that is preached, we must ask the question, does your gospel promise freedom from sin? Does your gospel lift the curse of the law upon me? Does your gospel grant me eternal life and free me from condemnation? Does your gospel proclaim a Christ who is sufficient in all things? Does your gospel offer a Holy Spirit who will complete the work that God began? 
See, those are promises we can rest in. Those are promises that the Gospel offers. That's why we, joy, we rejoice in Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's true freedom. Freedom from the penalty power of sin. Free unto good works and righteousness, walking in newness of life. And to, be, and, and, and to, and to behave righteously, to, to commit yourself to truth and good works is not, it's not self-righteousness. That's not legalism. That is simply the fruit of true faith, of true belief in the Gospel. And it is in the Gospel only that we have the true source of freedom. Anything outside of that, friends, any promises outside of that is pure arrogance. And how dare we say anything that seeks to add to the work of Christ or to say anything contrary to it which undermines the place of grace in God's saving work or anything that tries to supplant the person and work of Christ in that great work of redemption. So that is arrogance. And here's the third one. It is simply apostasy. So we have abdication, arrogance, and apostasy. And of course, apostasy being a departure from the faith. Having once identified yourself as a follower of Christ and a new creation, part of the church, the new covenant community of Christ, you then go and depart. Now the worst kind of apostate is the teacher. Because they typically try to lead people astray. They are able to deceive. They are those who stay in the flock long enough to gain a particular following. And as I already alluded to, even after departing from the truth of the Gospel, sometimes they stay and they cause trouble. They try to muddy the waters. They try to lead the immature along in their apostasy. See, that's where, that's where the pride comes in, right? An apostate teacher cannot stand to be alone. He cannot stand to depart by himself. His pride won't take it. He needs followers. He needs people who will commit themselves to his teaching. But this is where apostasy comes in. Rank spiritual apostasy. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than at first. So this sort of is, is the explanatory note of the end of verse 19. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So really, pick the vice. Pick the expression of unbelief. Right? If that is what is dominating the teacher or the would-be professor of Christ, that is what is enslaving them. That is their master. It's not Jesus Christ who has claim over them. And that's the question for us today, as a church and even as individual Christians. Who or what is dominating you? Are you dominated by the spirit of this age? Are you dominating by all that is being put under Christ's feet? Or are you dominated by the lusts of the flesh? Are you dominated by unbelief? Or are you dominated by righteousness? Are you dominated by the Holy Spirit? Do you, can you look at your life based on the witness of Scripture and clearly identify the Holy Spirit at work? That's what I said. You're always going to be enslaved to something. What is enslaving you? Because that is your master. Think about that. I love that word overcome, right? Who's, who's overcoming? Who's, who's 
Who's hit you like a, like a wave? Knocked you off your feet? Who can claim power over you? Right? Or, have we been over, or have we been overcome by grace? Have we been overcome by the working of the Spirit of God and the work of the Gospel? I hope we can say that. That that much is true. That in this church, that in, our, in, in the life of Emmaus Road, we are being overcome daily by the work of the Spirit. That He is completing that work of redemption. That we can say, yes, we are enslaved to Him. Gladly, gladly and eagerly we are enslaved to the Lord Jesus Christ. We belong to Him. So let's go to verse 20. For if, start there, for if, after they have escaped the defilements of this world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we understand, of course, that even if you are unsaved, I think we've, we've, we've highlighted this before, but it's worth saying again, there is a particular escape that takes place, right? There is a particular, I guess you could say, realm of grace or realm of safety that even an unbelieving person can enjoy if they are spending a lot of time with true believers. Like I said, if, if you're an unbeliever, this is like the best place you can be, is gathered with the people of God, gathered with the community of grace, because you are hearing the gospel. You're not out there sinning. I mean, maybe you're sitting there sinning, but at least you're hearing the gospel. See? And we would say that, and, th- and this, is to the, this is to the credit of the church as well, to the body of Christ, that there is so much grace here, that there, we, we receive such grace and mercy and favor from God that even an unbeliever can come here and partake of the benefit of us gathering together. That's how rich the community of God is. And so there is an escape, at least partially and at least temporarily, from the defilements of the world. All those things that, all those corrupting influences, as it were. I think that's what he means by defilements. Now in Christ, we have escaped those things to be sure. But those who are double-minded, those who do not truly belong to Christ, whether that's a false teacher or a false convert, for a time they may escape the corrupting influence by the world. But how? By the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now this is a very strong statement because it might seem at first glance to indicate that this person is truly saved. Because that's, that's a theme in Peter, probably the most prominent theme is knowing, right? Growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word, know, knowing knowledge is just such a rich theme in this book. But at least on the surface, it would seem, it would seem to indicate that. That this person has truly been redeemed. Perhaps they're leading a Bible study. Maybe they've been baptized. Maybe they partake of communion. Maybe they know all the spiritual lingo. Maybe they've prayed for you. They look like one of you. Why wouldn't they, especially if they've spent some time among you? That's the danger of counterfeits. And that's why we have books like 2 Peter. But there is, to be sure, an escape temporarily and partially. Especially as the gospel goes forth. And this, is, and this word for knowledge is, 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 is a strong word for it. As if to really know a true knowledge of the Lord and Savior. So, he is, so wherever this person is, Christ is being taught faithfully and clearly and consistently. Like, so they're, they're without excuse. They can't say, I did not know. They can't say, well, he wasn't preached enough or he, I only got half the story. No, they, they heard it all, right? They were probably discipled. And if, again, if, if, if false teachers are in view here, they've been with a local church for years. Okay. 
and they are again entangled in them and are overcome. Okay. That's the next part of this. So this is the same word that Paul uses to describe a soldier who does not entangle himself in the affairs of this world. Why? Because he's single-minded in being a soldier. That is his calling, that is his task, so he doesn't get caught up in the other affairs of the world because he's too busy being a soldier and following orders. So this word entangled, again, it's like, it's like a thread that weaves itself within the person and, of course, expresses itself by falling prey once again to sensual desires and temptation and ultimately spiritual apostasy. So you think about it, when he gets entangled, this is something that doesn't happen suddenly. It happens over time. The threads of unbelief weave their way into this person, fully by their permission, I might add. This is, there, there, is, there is a deliberate entanglement. So that now, instead of being completely entangled, as it were, by the things of Christ, a single-minded devotion to the gospel and serving the church, he becomes single-mindedly attached to the world and to sin and fulfilling his lust, lustful desires. It's the same thing that Jesus has in mind in Matthew 12. Uh, verses 43-45, I think Peter is perhaps remarking on this. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and it does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will be with this evil generation. So you see the context here. This evil generation, this evil generation that Jesus is speaking to at his own time that is going to fall under his own judgment. This is what Peter is speaking to. Even though you clean up your act, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to end up worse than you were before. And of course, for the true believer in Christ, our last state is truly better than the first because we end up with Christ in glory. But for the one who did not truly belong to Christ, when they are overcome, when they are overcome by sensuality, when they are overcome by unbelief, the last state has become worse for them than the first. That's why Peter goes on to say it would be Better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. See that? Often a proverbial statement, better than, right? Jesus mentions that, 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 that the, the person who causes these little ones of mine to stumble, it would be better if he had a millstone tied to his neck and he were drowned in the sea. So sort of proverbial. It'd be better than this. And it also applies to this the apostate character of these teachers. It would be better for them to never have known the way of righteousness. I think we could say the same thing about a, a supposed church member. This way of righteousness. Great description for the life of the church. Very precious description. Righteousness characterizes the entire life of the people of God from beginning to end. That we are justified, right? We are declared righteous by God through faith in Christ. And then out of that springs a righteous way of life that according to God's Word, we live consistently with Him in our desires, in our choices, in our very habits. That's why in the opening verse of this letter, we, we, have a righteous, we read about a righteousness from God. Leads to a totally transformed life. Noah was a preacher of what? 
righteousness, the righteousness of God. Peter brings it up again in 3.13 as a defining characteristic of the new heavens and new earth. It's a place where righteousness dwells, where righteousness is not seen as some kind of imposter, some kind of interloper, but has its run of the place. It's a place where righteousness dwells. It is a way of life. It's the rule, not the exception. Proverbs 12.28 speaks of righteousness this way. In the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. That's true righteousness from God. And of course we understand there is a counterfeit form of righteousness, which has always been proclaimed by false teachers. We find even Jesus indicting an indictment from Jesus in Matthew 21, 32. For John came to you in the way of what? Righteousness. And you did not believe him. See, what did the Jews pursue? A righteousness apart from faith. A counterfeit righteousness. And then he says this, This is offensive. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, and you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. See, those in your society who you you thought and said were most out of reach, who were the most unlikely to inherit the kingdom of God, are going in before you, and add to that, you aren't even going to enter yourself. You're going to watch every kind of, of, of social degenerate enter before you, and you'll be shut out. Why? What was the difference? Because they believed the good news and you did not. I love it how God can save anyone. He can save the most wretched person and conform them to the image of His Son. How dare we meddle with that? This way of righteousness. There's a great tragedy in Ezekiel chapter 18. Again, judgment upon the city looming. God is telling them to repent. But listen to this. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? Answer? No! All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed and his sin which he has committed. For them he will die. Why? His righteousness was counterfeit. He did righteously for a while, but he wasn't pursuing a righteousness by an abiding faith. And how is that evident? Spiritual apostasy. He did right at first, and then he turned away to, do, to partake in all of the abominations. Among them, idolatry. All the filthy abominations that Israel and Judah were partaking in. And if he ends up doing that, what does that say about the condition of his heart? He was not truly a righteous man. Because the righteousness that comes from God is not done in our own strength. They're not merely deeds. They're done in the power of the Holy Spirit and they're done by faith in Christ alone. That is true righteousness on display. And so, by the word of the prophet Ezekiel, if a person does what is right for a time, but then of course turns away with the rest of unbelieving Israel, he suffers death along with the evildoers because he was doing the same thing. And we should not be so naive as to to expect that something different will happen. Especially if we apostatize and go back to clinging to the old to the old way, to who we were, who we are apart from Christ. In Matthew twenty six twenty four, we read this: "The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed! It would be good for that man if he had not been born." We've referenced this before, but that is what it comes down to: apostasy. Especially if you have come to be a teacher among the flock of God. That is a betrayal of Christ Himself because it is a betrayal of His body. 
And to betray the body of Christ is to betray Christ. It is to turn your back on Him. So, of course, what waits is great judgment. The black darkness that has been reserved as Peter speaks about in verse 17. But listen to what Psalm 85.8 says. Look, this is hope for the people of God. So mark this down, Psalm 85.8. I will hear what God the Lord will say, for He will speak peace to His people, to His godly ones, but let them not turn back to folly. Again. So let us not merely escape the defilements, the polluting influence of this world for a time, and then fall back into unbelief. Let us see this escape as one that has been procured through the work of Christ. That it is a permanent salvation. That is a salvation that is evident through faith in Him, a continuing, ongoing faith, and a rest in His grace alone. We've all met, unfortunately, folks like this who abide so-called for a little while, and then they fall away. And of course, that means that their heart is not truly regenerated. It's very hard to see that, especially in those who proclaim Christ, at least for a little while. Proclaim to have knowledge of Him. And then again are, are overcome. And it says here that their last state, their last state is worse than the first. They end up even worse. That's why I said it would be even better. I think you know, that, 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 is, that is worth understanding. I think in one sense their last state is worse than the first because now they even have a greater condemnation because they have rejected Christ with full knowledge. Right. There's no ignorance that they can claim. We've already said that even putting into practice what they have learned from the gospel has, for a time, a mitigating effect on the corrupting influence of sin. But here's what happens. When you are in unbelief, and you come into the church, you know, you're, you're, you're partaking of all of the good things that are going on, all of these sanctifying activities, you're escaping the corruption of the, of the world for a while, but then you finally reject it after becoming learned in the gospel, learned in the truth, You completely shake off any restraints that were in place and basically open the floodgates of sin and unbelief. There's no new knowledge, there's no new truth to inform you that can have some kind of restraining influence. People like that say, I've heard it all. I've heard it all. What more is there for them to take in? You've cut yourself off from the new covenant community and any grace proffered by it. I think one thing we often don't keep in mind is that to apostatize in this manner is an offense to God because you, having learned of His grace and His mercy, all you end up doing is despising it. That should be something that is so contradictory and backwards to anyone who has been amongst the people of God. To hear of the riches of grace and mercy, the finished work of Christ, the hope of the gospel, being raised from death to life, and then to finally reject that? What more can you hear? What more can you know? When you reject the whole counsel of God, you're less inclined to consider it again, to process it again. You've heard all of it before. It no longer gives you the same refreshment. It no longer gives you the same alarm it once did. The same conviction. Yes, even false believers can have conviction. They can have a feeling of guilt. And yet there is a final rejection to it to where they no longer feel guilty. They no longer sense sense a prompting to repent and give their life to Christ. 
See, the person who has hated the gospel in his life will also come to hate it finally in his heart. And he will no longer consider the promises that stem from it. And one of the passages we've read before comes from Hebrews 10. It says, if we go on willfully sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice to sin. So that is to say, very briefly, that a, a Jewish convert to Christ, if he if he trampled on the blood of Christ, if he sinned willfully, he couldn't go back to the sacrificial system. There's there's nothing to go back to. All he had was a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. He has no more quarter. And yet in this time, his conscience, I believe, has been seared as with the hot iron. He's no longer receptive to the Gospel. He has heard everything. That is why at the end of this passage in Hebrews 10, Verse 31, it says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Lord will judge His people. They will judge His people. Having finally rejected this holy commandment. They rejected the holy commandment. Rather than, rather than overcoming the world through faith in Christ, they are overcome by it and they reject the holy commandment. What is this? What is this holy commandment? I think the best way to understand this is the faith once for all delivered to the saints as Jude teaches. Right? We, see, we see the Gospel proclaimed as the commandment. Right? Even the Gospel itself, when we proclaim it, we are commanding men to respond to it. We're not presenting Jesus as, as, as a take-it-or-leave-it Savior. We're saying, no, Christ has accomplished this, therefore you must repent and believe in Him. That is the holy commandment that we proclaim. It is good and true and right. And we insist that men respond and and believe in Christ. But now they have rejected it. Having full access to the teaching of God's Word. Having full access to all of the, the, the Old Testament which points to the fullness of it in Christ. And that has been denounced. It is to ultimately renounce Christ and the truth that He alone is mighty to save. And once that is rejected with finality, there is no going back. And you, I mean, we've met those people. You see them all the time. Yeah, I've heard all of it. Yeah, I was there once. Yeah, I got baptized. I believed I was going on missions trips. But at some point or another, there was a final rejection. And of course, Peter finishes off this passage with a rather gruesome illustration. <laughs> Look at verse 22. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. So I think this is a good illustration of the misery that accompanies final rejection. There is a, there is a cynicism. There is an outright rejection and hatred toward the doctrine of Christ when people final, finally reject it. A misery that was not there before they walked into the the community of the faithful. But this is it. A dog returns to its vomit. Proverbs 26.11 Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And in this case, it's the folly of unbelief. It's the folly of of, of repeatedly hearing the Gospel and then rejecting it. And I would hope that we are not characterized by that. There is going to come a time where your mind is going to be Seared, you're going to be given up to a depraved mind and you're no longer going to consider the beauty and truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So a dog returns to its own vomit. This is disgusting. I mean, those of you who have, have dogs or have had a dog, they actually do this. You wonder, and it kind of takes away the mystery of why the Old Testament declared dogs to be unclean. Dogs are disgusting. I love my dog, and he is gross. And one of the reasons why is a dog returns to his vomit. I mean, in a sense, that's how it should be for the Christian, not the returning to its, our vomit of, of, of our old life. But the fact is, when we come to Christ, guess what happens? We're purged. There is a purging that goes on. There's something about conversion that is, that is violent. Right? Going from old to new is not the most pleasant experience because there is an acknowledgement of the vileness of sin in our lost estate before the living God, as long as we are in unbelief. And we're sickened by it. We're sickened by our sin. But then he says, these, whether false teachers or false believers are in view, I think both can be the case because both occur. So don't be either. A dog returns to its vomit, the very thing that it purged up. It just makes me sick even thinking about that. But it should make you sick as well. But even that very thought should help us flee to Christ and all of His grace so that we do not go back to those things which Christ sets us free from. Listen to what Matthew Poole says regarding this. As dogs vomit up what is burdensome to them, but still being dogs, see, and not having changed their natures by easing their stomachs, lick up their own vomit again. So these, under a fit of conviction, through the power of the Word, disgorge those sins which burden their consciences. But having thereby gotten some ease, that is, you know, again, the relief that comes from being amongst the people of God. Okay, continue the quote. And their old nature and love to their former lusts still remaining, they again return to the same sins that they had for a time forsaken. See, this is the, this is the key. A genuine convert will have a true love of Jesus Christ. That was the difference between Judas and Peter, mind you. Judas went out and hung himself. Peter went and wept. He had a true, genuine love for his Savior and repented and was restored. There was more than just a burdened conscience. There was more than just temporary ease and being able to spare himself some trouble from being identified with Christ who was about to be executed. There was a genuine repentance that followed up. This should give us pause to think, am I like this dog, like this unclean thing? And here's the other one. As a sow who wallows in the mud. A sow is also seen as an unclean animal in the Old Testament. This is actually not, this this proverb of the sow wallowing in the mud is not actually from the Scriptures. It's thought by some scholars that it's drawn from the story of Ahikar, I guess, Peter was familiar with this, but it goes, the story goes this, thusly, You were to me, my son, like a swine which had had a bath, and when it saw a slimy pit, went down and bathed in. It's looking for mud, right? Looking for mud in all the wrong places. See, all the pretense is gone at this point. They're looking for ways to soil themselves. As Philippians 3.19 says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So these people in view, which are probably false teachers or false converts, perhaps Judaizers, 
Their glory is in their shame. That is, their glory is in their filth. They say, look at me, I'm muddy. Look at me, I'm dirty. And, it's, and even though, I mean, you can wash a pig, right? You can, you, 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 can, you can get the mud off the pig, but you can't get the mud out of the pig because the pig in his mindset is, still says, I am a pig. There's mud, right? Just like the leopard can't change his spots, you, can't, you can only keep a pig clean for so long. But as its nature, being a pig, it wants to go back and wallow in the mud and be filthy. A dog, because it's a dog, vomits up his food, goes outside, comes back and sees the pile of vomit that hasn't been cleaned up yet, and says, hey, look, a meal! That's so gross, disgusting, and and the thought of going back to our own sin should utterly disgust us, should make us spiritually queasy and maybe physically queasy, because it is so contradictory to our new life in Christ. And we should have nothing to do with it. There is this holy disownment that, the, that, that is characteristic of the mind of, the, of, of those who are in Christ. Right? We have died to sin. We don't live in it any longer. We have divorced ourselves from it. We, we were, it's dead to us, right? We have nothing to do with it anymore, especially not by way of habit. But if you're a pig, and if you're a dog, and if that hurts your feelings, then great. Whatever it takes to lead you to the foot of the cross, to do away with this life forever. It's worth it. But a dog is going to be a dog. And its actions are going to prove it. Right? And if you're not a spiritual dog, you're going to be purged from sin and not return. And if you're not spiritual swine, you're not going to go like a pig and wallow in the mud. You're going to go to the market and buy bacon and enjoy it. That's what Christians do. We enjoy God's good things. We don't act like those good things. But I digress. That is, that there is a shamelessness to this that has to be, that we have to be made aware of and that we have to stand guard against. And we've, we've said that again and again. But again, this is not to say that one can lose their salvation, but that is also to say, beware of false prophets. Examine your own hearts to see if you truly are in the faith. And be willing to assess your own spiritual condition in light of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit is working, there will be a work. There will be a change. There will be a transformation. There will be a consistent commitment to righteous living by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so whatever side you fall on, right? whether you're a member of a church or teaching within a church, Be aware of these characteristics. Guard yourself from them and from their influence. And follow Christ in faith. And again, watch watch the work that He will do. You know, I don't want you know we we are we are small. We are not many, but that does not mean that Christ cannot work mightily in our midst. And one of the ways that that occurs is with a single-minded commitment to Him to not entangle ourselves with the oldness, but to entangle ourselves with all that is new and life-giving and sanctifying. So I hope that at least encourages you guys. I, I really you know, want us to be on guard because there is, there is no end to this. As long as we are alive, we will, we will contend against counterfeit gospels. We will contend against counterfeit teachers. But remember this above all, is that the grace that God gives from His Word is always sufficient to be on guard and to stay walking Uh, walking in the truth.
So from 1 John 5, 4-5, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? Then he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen. And we have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you so much for your love and faithfulness. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for these warnings, even though these are things that even in Peter's own time have already taken place. There is a finality to it, and yet it serves as a, such a timely, uh, timeless warning to your people. Uh, so many applications we can draw, and we can't even cover all of them, but, but Father, we can look to your Holy Spirit to apply in, in our church and even in our individual lives as you see fit. But I do pray, Lord, for this precious flock, um, especially that you have called me and Jeremy to, to, to serve and to love and to, and to minister uh, the Word to. I pray that you would guard us against some of these flashy new teachings and um, things that really, Lord, rest in the wisdom of man rather than in the wisdom and power of God. Guard us from those temptations. Help us to live righteously without hypocrisy to be an example to this, this dear flock. Pray for Emmaus Road that you continue to work in, in our midst, Lord. We believe that your presence is truly with us, that you are, um, that you are purifying us, that you are making us like Christ, and that you are preparing us, Father, for every good work. Only help us, Lord, to do that in not our own strength, but in the power of the Spirit that we would have nothing to boast about, but only to boast in You. Um, guard us, Lord, also from, from false teachers, from false doctrine, even the, even the things that are subtle, um, the things that may not be as obvious, the things that, again, hijack some of these precious terms in Scripture and put a twist on them so as to mislead and deceive. Lord, guard us against that. We know we have the mind of Christ. We know You've given us wisdom. Uh, please help us to apply it. All, Lord, to your glory and for the great name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen.